helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. Welcome to the latest episode of Active CEO, where the ordinary don't belong. It's an exciting show today, Ben, as we have a talented leader we both have worked with and alongside in recent years. She is a trailblazing leader as both a CEO and a board chair and director. Her kind, inclusive and focused leadership style has seen her build several thriving organizations, communities for more than three decades. Not only is she a great leader, but she is also a very active CEO who keeps fit, eats healthy, and finds quality time to unwind and recover. From her days at the Australian Sports Commission in the 1990s to stamping out performance-enhancing drugs at the UCI and ASADA during the 2000s, to resurrecting triathlon Australia in the 2010s, and now at the helm of sport and recreation at the New South Wales Government Office of Sport. This remarkable lady continues to make a massive difference in the sport industry, I would like to introduce and welcome to you our special guest, Anne Gripper, and welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Craig, and uh, hello, Ben. Uh, Anne, how are you? Thank you for joining us on um, Active CEO, and it's exciting to have you part of our uh, podcast. Mm, it's great to be with you. Yeah, Early days, I, I believe. Yeah, correct. Um, I guess, Anne, I'd, I would like to kick straight into it, and something quite simple I like asking all our guests is, what's the driving force or what's the thing that might get you out of bed each morning um, to face up to the daily challenges of, of being an active CEO? It probably sounds a bit uh, cliched, but for me, my working life has been really driven by really wanting to make a difference, um, really wanting to um, you know, create better lives for people in whatever way that, that we can. And Certainly working in sport, and I've had the honour and privilege of working in sport for the last 26 years, um, has given me a great uh, canvas on which to do that. Is that something that's been derived through uh, your childhood or your parents or your background? Uh, yes, it has. Um, I was one of four, uh, four children. Um, we were all, you know, reasonably active as kids. We were well supported by our parents who, you know, were happy to sort of ferry us around. I think we enjoyed a lot of good social engagement through our sporting uh, activities at school. So I've always had this sense that sport provides kind of a fundamental value to everybody who's involved. So I guess the catalyst for me working in sport um, was – uh, being down at Circular Quay on the 23rd of September, 2000, sorry, 1993, when Sydney was awarded the Olympic Games. And I thought, I just want to work in sport and I don't care where I start or where I go, but I, I want to be involved um, during the, the Sydney Olympics. I'd always been a passionate Olympic Games follower and so that was really the catalyst for me. A, a defining, just, yeah, defining moment, if you will. It was yeah. it was a really defining moment. I remember it was about quarter to four in the morning on that uh, that day when uh, Juan Antonio Samaranch said that Sydney had the, the games and I thought, right, that's it. My and, working life is going to be uh, in sport. And you were down there at Circular Quay for that moment? I was. Wow, that's, that's right. fantastic. Yeah. Um, 
and now you're seen through a couple of Olympic Games, both as an administrator um, at the helm of Triathlon Australia and also working um, at ASADA and UCI. That's right. Yeah, I've been to the Olympic. I've been now to uh, five Summer Olympic Games and one Winter Olympic Games in, a, in some sort of capacity and feel very honoured to have, you know, done that. And would it be fair to say now that um, in your current capacity with New South Wales Sport of Recreation, um, it's more grassroots that you're looking at now, more development of sport? It is, very much so. And uh, it's, again, a real chance to um, make a difference in how we provide opportunities for people, particularly in regional New South Wales, uh, to experience good quality organised sport and active recreation so my role here, or part of my role, um, is about creating um, a specific regional sport and active recreation plan for each of the nine regions of New South Wales. Um, and, you know, we did that. It was a great experience to actually go out into the country and rural parts of New South Wales and really spend some good time with the, uh, the people and organisations who are working in sport and rec uh, out around the state. So obviously always good people involved, but what are some of the challenges that are, are, don't surround the, the people? How Why is it so difficult for sport to be, um, I guess, an active part of a community nowadays? Look, it's difficult in some ways, but in others it's easier for sport to have a real following and a real impact in some of the more remote areas of New South Wales. Sport is a vehicle for social cohesion and for health outcomes, more so out in the regional areas than it is in Metro Sydney, for example. Um, and that's despite the what we, we would see as obstacles. So lack of facilities, huge distances to travel, um, you know, smaller communities, but they still manage to ensure that sport is a really is really part of the social fabric of their life. Community is a huge part of you know, what you've been involved in your entire career, whether it be from a national sporting organisation point of view or now where you're dealing more at those regional communities. And I know that you were one of the first people to start females in training and in particular novice training programs there. Tell us how that came about. Yeah. Uh, so FIT or Females in Training came about in uh, 1996. Um, I'd been living in Canberra for a couple of years and uh, I just run into a, a really good group of um, women who were keen to, um, I guess it's, it's, it's again about making opportunities for women. And we were particularly focused on women who were either commencing or recommencing some form of physical activity. And we set Females in Training up really as a place for women to come to, to gain some confidence and some skills um, and we thought they would spend, you know, a couple of months with us, learn how to ride a bike, you know, learn how to, you know, hone their swimming a little bit, and then they would go off and join what we considered the proper triathlon clubs in Canberra. Um, but what we found was they came and they stayed. So fit in after a year or so had become a, sort of an established triathlon club of its own of its own right. and I think you'd be we, very proud to know that it's still uh, it thriving, is. thriving nowadays in 2018 uh, after yeah, all those years and still providing that exact conduit to um, provide uh, ladies in particular to uh, enter into sport again. 
it's, a, it's full credit to you guys what you did back then. Yeah, look, yeah. it is amazing that yeah. it is it is going that strongly, and I you know I just feel that it the reason why it is is because there is an ongoing need to give women the confidence. You know, this is the front brake and this is the back brake and, you know, this is how a bike works. It's hard for them to find that sort of opportunity in mixed environments, mixed gender environments. I also uh, get a feeling with that the fit um, training setup, it's it's that very community-orientated, it's the supportive environment. It's more than just the technical aspect of what a triathlon or what running or riding happens to be. Um, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's supportive, is. inclusive type environment. Yes, yes. And it is that. It, it is a social environment as well. And it, it actually became that very quickly. So the whole coffee off, off the bike became entrenched in the fit concept very early. And I think the, that sense of feeling supported, like just little things like when we were – um, you know, suggesting that people could go in a very basic level triathlon, um, we would put a more experienced fit person in to deliberately come last because one of the greatest fears of women is coming last or making a fool of themselves. So we could absolutely guarantee you enter this race, you will not come last because myself or Robin Barker or someone would arrange to come last. We yeah. would come last. So that just little things like that that take away some of those fears of um, being embarrassed. So that from those really early experiences that you had in leadership, what now resonates in your current roles? Why, why do you think that you, you're successful and you can um, inspire communities and, and young athletes or young community members um, to be the best they can be? I think for a couple of years I've been thinking about um, – some similarities in what I've been able to do in more recent leadership roles. And it comes down to, for me, it comes down to six words starting with C. Now, three of them are doing words and three of them are being words. That's how you are. So the um, the doing words or the verbs are you, you communicate, I communicate and I communicate the big picture about what we're trying to achieve and I often communicate in stories. Um, I connect so connecting is such an important part of leadership. It's connecting people with themselves, staff with themselves, and also people with their communities. Um, and I really care. I care about people and I care about how what their experience is in whatever it is that we're doing. And then the three sort of being words are, I think, being curious, being courageous, and, and ultimately being calm. So they're, they're kind of the things that... I, when I look back, I've sort of applied those those things without really recognising it and it was just a couple of months ago that I was asked to do a little bit of a talk on what, some, what was described as my leadership mentality and I sort of came to those six things as being really core to what I've either consciously or unconsciously done over the, probably the last 15 years of leadership. Now, if I think back to my interactions with you over the last few years, those six words resonate really strongly in the way you have led. Yeah, and I, I particularly like those ones towards the end about being calm. Um, yes. It's, it's just an, probably a, a, a gift that you need, everybody needs to expand on um, in leadership roles uh, because everyone becomes very reactive. Uh, yeah. The fact is yeah. that you need to be proactive in how you approach all these things. And being calm is the only way to sort of feed into that. That's right. 
and and even if you have to pretend to be calm, um, and often I know I'll, I'll admit I do a lot of pretending to be calm when I'm not feeling that way at all. But there's I don't think there's nothing more unsettling to a group to feel that their leader is stressed or overwhelmed or you know unsure. So I, I do do a lot of pretending that I'm calm. <laughs> <laughs> so when you came into the Triathlon Australia role in 2010, you were faced with a huge challenge. Uh, with the organisation hitting rock bottom, maybe limited or no direction, the public relations at the time were relatively poor, and it was in, you know, quite serious financial trouble. Of mm-hmm. those six C's, you know, which ones <laughs> do you think were the most important to help you through that first year or two? I think connect. I think I came into the sport, and it was very fragmented and very sort of clicky in a way and very um, – there were parts of the parts that were very disenfranchised. So for me it was sort of connecting kind of the parts of the sport together and that emerged in my later time in triathlon with really trying to make a, a good stab of connecting up the, the state associations with the national body. But it, it started much at a much more sort of ground-level um approach of let's connect with our members let's you know engage with our members a little bit more and let's you know so we started off with a very low membership base and I think people had just got sick of being let down by the sport Um, so it was that sort of connection uh, with ourselves and then with our community and potential members. So talk about connection there and um, it, from a leadership perspective, how how would some how does a CEO or a leader go about connecting? For me, there's a lot of genuine listening. So listening and also being able to identify uh, similarity of purpose. Um, that means that it, it is possible to make something bigger than the sum of its parts by connecting two different people or or two different organisations together. And everywhere I go, there are opportunities for connection. And people get sick of me standing on my soapbox saying, well, rather than, you know, going off on two or three different tangents, let's bring these three people or three groups or together and see what we can create by by building on each each. Um, you know, each of their expertise and their preferences and their skills. And I imagine, um, I guess, to go off on a little tangent here, that would have been a very difficult thing to do in one of your roles when you were with uh, uh, UCI in Europe with cycling, which is a very fragmented sport um, and plenty of problems at back of house, so to speak. I'm sure that was a difficult, difficult role. Yeah, absolutely, and connection took a lot longer to mm. get uh, at the UCI. Um, but again, it turned out to be the real key to making a start on some really substantial behavioural changes uh, within the sport, particularly the male professional world of cycling. Um, and 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 connection again paved the way for um, people and organisations coming together, even if they're just sitting in a room together. So at one stage we had um, uh, some key event organisers of major cycling races, some key um, professional team managers and some riders in a room together. There were about 15 people, so about five of each, saying, well, how collectively 
can we make a difference in the culture of cycling? And it's not it's not just the team managers and it's not just the organisers and it's the riders can't do much on themselves and it's not just the UCI. We all have to work together. We all have to connect up. And that was really the genesis for um, a sense of commitment to a whole new way of doing anti-doping because it did require a financial commitment and it was the genesis of each of those groups saying, yep, okay, we'll, we'll contribute financially. Yeah. And I know things aren't generally – you don't get much progress just by fo focusing on finance, but the fact that they were all willing to contribute a reasonable amount of money to a fund that would then enable some real groundbreaking work to be made in their anti-doping area was because they all agreed to make some – uh, commitment themselves. So I guess one of the challenging points there, so you, you have connection, you have um, communication, but how do you build yep. the trust in something like that? Yeah, so that was trust, building trust was really difficult yeah. but absolutely critical to making any impact at all in the world of professional cycling. Uh, when I arrived, I was... I was a complete interloper. I, I was the wrong gender. I was from the wrong part of the world. I spoke the wrong language. Um, and effectively, I didn't have my key tool of trade, which is communication. I couldn't because French was the dominant language of cycling, followed by Spanish and Italian, um, and then you know, English was a long way forth. I, so much of what I had done had relied on both verbal and written communication and that tool of trade was taken away from me in the UCI environment. Wow. So, so you would have started to really develop those skill sets of observation um, and, and seeing how pe you know, what people are doing with their eyes, their body language. Exactly. I had to read a whole lot more into those non-verbal cues than I ever had before. Um, so that, that was really challenging. But in answer to your question, the way that I overcame that. Look, I really did care. I cared passionately about uh, the cause, what you know, what I was trying to do. I cared passionately about the sport because um, it is the ancient art of cycling. It's a great sport. There's no. I cared about the riders themselves because I could see what sort of um, what sort of uh, difficulties and dilemmas they were constantly faced with. Um, I cared about the. I cared about the spectators, you know, the, the fans of cycling. That there's such an important part. So I, I did have this genuine care for those who were involved in the sport and I believed who could collectively make it better. And do you think that care probably um, built the trust? I hope so. I think that after a few, as I said, I had all the wrong characteristics to be the person that could make the change. Um, as I said, I had all those things and I was trying to change a very Eurocentric, uh, comfortable way that particularly the professional teams had operated for, you know, decades, you know, hundreds of years for some of them, a hundred of years. So it really was um, me. I think I was, I had to be consistent and I had to keep showing that there was no other ulterior motive um, and that not only I cared, but the UCI cared. I mean, I, I was representing the UCI and there was a lot of distrust yeah. for the UCI, some of it legitimate and others misinformed. Um, 
and, and it just was being able to show to them that I had the organisation with me, that this was something. And the UCI definitely did care. And Pat McQuaid, although he was kind of roundly criticised on many things, he did absolutely care about this. Mm. You know, he and there were time, many, many times where he did demonstrate that this was really, really a really important issue for him. And as you sit here today, are you proud of where cycling has um, progressed to? Yeah, look, if I look behind me on my uh, wall here at uh, in Sydney, I've got I've had enlarged a photo, which is one of my favourite photos. It's the, it's a photo of the 2011 Tour de France as the peloton is going up the Col de Galibier. Um, and this was the race where they went up that climb about 6% slower than they ever had before. Um, it was the race that Cadell won, which I see really as sort of the, the cherry on top of the cake. There are a whole lot of other things that happened during that race in 2011 which to me showed that we'd reached a watershed in the sport of cycling. For instance, Tommy Verkula wore the yellow jersey for 10 days, so the French suddenly had their heroes back. Mm. Um, little Young Pierre Rolland, as he was at the time, won the Alpe d'Huez stage. So, so many things happened in that 2011 race that indicated to me that this peloton that I can look behind me and see, I would make a guess that 85% of them this, that year were doing it pretty clean. Whereas in previous years it would be the opposite. It would be 85% who weren't doing it clean. As a, uh, a fan of cycling, I can understand why you're proud of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it's sort of – it was a watershed moment and I think the sport has moved forward um, from that time and is certainly in a much better place now than it was back in the dark days of, mm. you know, the 1990s and the and the 2000s. So you, you refer to those dark days and there's, you know, obvious – obviously names out there that everybody recognises that were very uh, bold and very strong characters. Um, yeah. We all in leadership roles have to deal with the bold, the strong, uh, the dominant, if dare say the bullying type characteristics. Yeah. Um, how are some of the strategies that you use or what are some of the strategies you might use to, to help get you through those periods of time because it's, it's a very tough thing to do? It is. And some of the riders were um, – some of the riders, and particularly their managers, were bullies. Mm. Some of the team managers were bullies. Um, and it, it, again, is just being consistent and, um, you know, treating everyone the same and not not buckling under the pressure of those particular riders or managers. That's, um, so, that's so difficult to do on a daily basis. It is. It is. I agree mm. because, you know, your, your natural reaction is to lash out um, to me, whenever I think someone is being unfair or unreasonable, my natural reaction is to sort of lash out and say, well, that's not right. But, again, it's just keeping that calm consistency. Mm. Um, and, look, I'm, you, you'll never change those people, but at least you can't give them more fuel to add to their fire. So you've had some uh, amazing experiences both here in Australia and overseas in this role, as we can all tell. How would you define a high-performance CEO or leader? Uh, well, I think it is for me. It is those sort of those um, applying those sort of six C words, but it's also, uh, for me, it's someone also that can put work into perspective 
So I can only be a high-performance leader when I'm at work if I've got other things in my life which mean that I'm not burnt out by the issues that happen at work. I, I really need other things to think about and be excited about. Um, and as you said in your, your introduction, I, I absolutely need to have physical activity as part of my life. Okay, so what training do you do regularly to ensure that you're constantly improving as a high-performance CEO? <laughs> what training, as in physical training? Or no, I just I think just a health and fitness routine and, and holistically yeah. as well, you know, it's from a resilience training or, or what things do you put in place to ensure that you're constantly improving like an athlete would in their training for yeah, competition? Yeah. yeah, for me it's it's the old um, the old message of mind and body. So my mind works so much better and is so much, uh, particularly about blue sky thinking and alternative ways of thinking about things and challenging people, being curious about what it is that we could achieve if my body is feeling good. And the way my body feels good is um, that, you know, it feels strong, it feels resilient and and. You know, I'm I'm a triathlete and cyclist by background, not a, not a very good one, but they're the they're the activities that I still get the greatest um, sense of uh, benefit from. So I, I I still swim, I still run, and I still cycle, and I try to do um, I try to do something normally early in the morning on at least six out of the seven days of the week. And normally the seven, the, the one day is because I just can't, like I've got a six o'clock flight and an all-day meeting and I normally try to plan my week. So they say, look, Tuesday I won't be able to do anything because I physically and – and I don't stress myself out by on that Tuesday saying, okay, I'll take my sand shoes and do laps around the airport or anything crazy like that. I just accept the fact that Tuesday is not going to be possible. But, you know, I've still got the other six days of the week to be able to do something that will make my body feel good and therefore that it will enable me to be a much greater contributor when it comes to using my mind. So, so every day we wake up and we feel slightly different. We may have had that exercise that helps get us perked up. What are your daily habits that help you to bring your A game to the office and interactions with people? So for me it is doing something um, physical every morning. I do my physical exercise in the morning, A, because that's when I feel more like doing it, and B, because then it sort of goes through the, the whole day and it's it's less disruptive. You get out, you do it, come, you know, have a shower and it's done for the day and you I, I reap the benefits of that all day. And do you have any kind of, you know, sort of psychological, mental side of things where you, you know, might, might talk to yourself or you might prep yourself going into a meeting, uh, especially when you've got back-to-back meetings during the day? Yeah, look, I'm not so good at that, to be honest. I, I do tend to uh, – look, for some meetings, clearly I do have to prepare and get myself kind of organised and uh, there are some – I choose the meetings where I do do preparation because I know my contribution will be better. There are other meetings where I think I'm going to go into this meeting carrying nothing with no preconceptions and just – what I challenge myself to do is to ask some questions which potentially change the direction of the discussion and, and add some real value. I try not to get involved in just the sort of back and forth discussion that often happens at a meeting, but to wait to listen and then to ask a question that potentially could be a paradigm shifter. 
Excellent. So I think that's really, really important to to be asking those questions. And, you know, I think that's a core um, important aspect of being a leader is that listening skills as well. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I also know that after, uh, I guess, if you look at your career after each one of these um, successful jobs, you also tend to take a period of time out from uh, the work environment uh, for I'm not really sure how long, but for a substantial <laughs> period of time until you sort yeah. of move on to your next adventure is what I, how I'd like to phrase it. But obviously you see that as an important point. That's been really important to me. So um, my aspiration when I started work was that I would work for five years and then have a year off doing something entirely different. Um, the reality is I've done that three times. Um, and I've used that year off between roles um, for, you know, very different things. So the first one was I did my Master of Sports Admin over in Lausanne in Switzerland, which is what took me to Switzerland, um, and it led then to um, being employed by the UCI. So I was only going to have a year off, but it led to something good. Then the second time um, I set up a philanthropic foundation uh, so I had to do a lot of learning and a lot of uh, understanding. It was something I'd never been involved in before. And then the last time, which was after triathlon, uh, it was more of just a have a good time, almost like take a year's retirement in advance. <laughs> so I did a lot of cycling holidays. I think that's commonly uh, referred to as a gap year nowadays. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a middle-aged gap year. Yeah, middle-aged that's exactly gap year. right. Right. I started off by cycling from Perth up to the Ningaloo Reef and then did some open water – learnt to – got my open water dive certificate. That was the first uh, eight weeks of that year off. Right. <laughs> Exciting. So, Anne, yeah. we, we all know smart people have great questions, but the best people have great answers. So we've got three questions that we like to ask our guests on the show the first one is, when was the last time you did something for the first time? Ah, something for the first time. Um, oh, it was yesterday. So for the first time, I sat on a board, uh, the board of a fantastic uh, community organisation called the Australian Centre for Regional Entrepreneurship down in Beechworth in the grounds of the old Beechworth Jail, uh, which has just been bought by the community as a community asset. I won't go into all the details, but it was certainly something I did for the first time, A, to be involved in a board like that and B, to have a meeting in a, in a jail. Wow. It's a great first-time experience. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked about your exercise and what you like to do in the morning as part of being an active CEO. Is there something else you do maybe from a nutrition point of view uh, that you do try to do every day? Uh, I'm not sure whether it meets the definition of uh, nutrition, but something that makes me feel really good every day is I have my first cup of real coffee at about between 10 and 10.30. <laughs> my first cup of coffee, which happens to be a really good real one. So I make myself wait until then and then I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> We know what time not to call you then. Don't call Anne between 10 and 10.30. She's busy. Yeah, exactly. And, and who has made the greatest impact on your career and why? My very first mentor um, was a woman called Linda Glassop and Linda 
uh, my the first five years of my working life wasn't in sport. Uh, it was in uh, an organisation called Digital Equipment Corporation, which was a basically made large computers, so totally unrelated to sport. But it was an organisation that had really had a great inte- had great integrity. Um, we did business in a really ethical way. I was working in human resources, and I learned a lot of really good things that set me up for you know what I've been able to enact in my. Um, my role since then. And Linda Glassett was an operations manager who was very involved in integrity and quality and doing things the right way. And I learned a lot from her over those first couple of years of my working life. Even though she wasn't my direct uh, manager, uh, I sort of latched onto her and certainly learned a lot from her. And those those things have really stayed very true and, and dear to me over the, the next parts of my working life. Oh, so it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Anne. I, I think you know, it's been really interesting to hear about your six C words, uh, about communication, connecting, caring, curiosity, being courageous and calm, and seeing how you've integrated that into your roles um, over the past you know, 20, 26 years. Yeah, twenty six. Well, work sport for twenty six years. I think total working life is about thirty one now. And and as we both said earlier, we've you know been able to experience all those six C words with you um, in our interactions we've had over the past few years. And I think Ben's had a lot longer interaction than I have. Well, it's certainly easy to see when we um, talk with you why you've been so successful and so well uh, regarded within your working career. So congratulations on that, and both Craig and I. Um, are really uh, humbled that that you've spent the time with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, so thank you very much for sharing your ideas, knowledge and insights into being a high-performance and active CEO. Thank you and uh, all the best. Hope hope you uh, get some great people on the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Anne. We've got a few lined up over the next couple of weeks, which uh, I'm sure the listeners will will really enjoy. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the opportunity. So Ben, this week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is the energy to perform. We've all got lots of CEOs and leaders out there that are trying to reach that high performance and and peak in what they're doing in the industry. But we all know that if they don't get the energy, the nutrition and the recovery right, they're not going to be able to achieve their best potential in the workplace. Oh, absolutely, Craig. There's some critical factors that you need to be aware of. Uh, when you're thinking about how you plan your workday. So things like starting with a good breakfast, um, good meal breaks, well hydrated, well rested, really critical to how you come across to your staff, okay, and and how you lead your people. And as Anne spoke about during today's podcast, you know, it can be really useful to get that, you know, a bit of exercise at the beginning of the day before you get distracted. It makes you feel more mentally alert. Um, you feel better about yourself, so your self-esteem is high, and you come into the workplace really positive. Yeah, absolutely. But it's important to acknowledge that people are different. And I also know some CEOs that take some time out at lunchtime, which seems like a quite a difficult thing to do, but just gives them that mental break and that little bit of pep up um, at lunchtime when they've gone out and, and done some exercise or to the gym or even just a simple walk around the block to get some air. Um, really important that you do those uh, style activities so you can continue through the afternoon. 
and people, you know, when they think about recovery, they think about sleep at night. And for most people, most leaders and CEOs and general people nowadays are getting not enough sleep. You know, it'll make a big difference if they are getting around that eight hours sleep rather than four to six hours, which some people get. But recovery is not only about resting at night, it's also during the day. And it, it's invaluable just to get up out of your chair once an hour, yeah. every 45 minutes. And it may be for a minute or two just to go for a walk. It freshens up the body and the mind again, and you're ready to go for that next right. period of work. And I think you make a good point about that sleep cycle and that sleep pattern. And as we know, as leaders and CEOs, everybody has a tight travel schedule, and that certainly throws you out. There's plenty of us that leave very early in the morning, um, have to travel on the plane to somewhere and then come back that day and so forth. Really difficult tasks, but you've just got to work on planning your calendar, your days, uh, to try and enhance the time that you've got to be better at what you do. Oh, for sure. That was a great show today, Ben. Uh, wonderful to listen to Ann Gripper, um, someone we've known for quite a while now, and get some insight into who she is as a leader, what her purpose is, and how she's you know, gone through her career over the last three decades. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And really, Craig, what I'd make as, uh, if we had to call it a take-home message from that, was the six C words that Anne was talking about. They were great. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about uh, communication, um, connect, so connecting with the people, um, care, caring for your staff, your employees, the people that you have, um, being curious, that's a, that's a massive point to me, always wondering, always thinking outside what you just do. Being open-minded, being, answer, yep. asking questions. Yep. Uh, and had courageous, um, which is another one, you know, as leaders, it's, there's a lot of courageous decisions that need to be made. Or you think about being courageous when she was working at the UCI. She was in a completely foreign environment. Yeah, absolutely. That, challenges. That's, that's massive challenges there. And then really the last one that resonated for me as a leader would be to stay calm. Yeah. Calm. Um, we all know that uh, when you move into that red zone, um, you become very reactive, um, very stressed, um, and that rubs off on your people. Uh, so stay calm, uh, particularly when things might not be falling your way is, a, is something that Anne um, talked about and I think it's a fantastic take home. I think some of the other aspects she, she brought up in the interview were around having a perspective outside of her work that gets her excited every day. Yeah, oh, I mean, we all need to have something um, just to take that day-to-day stress away. Um, so whether it's family, whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's sport, whether it's walking with the dog, all we know all those things, but do we apply those things? And the answer is a lot of us don't. And it's all about habits. Yep. And I, and I think that's really important for all uh, CEOs and leaders is to form really positive habits that allow you to get into that peak performance zone and deliver amazing things for the people you're you're working with and your purpose of what you're trying to achieve. And I certainly think Anne uh, falls right into the wheelhouse of being an active CEO. It's just fantastic. Oh, she's definitely one of the people that falls into the category of mm. where the ordinary don't belong. So remember, you can find all the links mentioned in this podcast in the episode three show notes. It's a great podcast to share with your friends. So thanks for listening. Where the ordinary don't belong. 
Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.